Welcome to Beyond Politics. I'm Matt Robeson. You might remember last week I went on the radio show hosted by my friend and kind of a radio legend, West Virginia radio host, Howard Monroe. We talked about the new set of Trump indictments. And one of the things that came up is just how much Donald Trump was thumbing his nose, just just completely ignoring the legal system, the laws of the United States trying to overturn an American election, ignoring the orders by federal judges. And it brought up this larger issue for Howard that he wanted to explore about the extent to which we're seeing the Republican Party do this more and more at the state level. There's just all these instances where legislatures and governors and political leaders just basically say, no, the laws don't apply to them. So what does that mean? Can we continue to operate American democracy in that kind of a context where you have largely from one political party, so many political figures saying, yeah, the rule of law just really does not apply to us. How do we move forward through that? So we got into that conversation this week with Howard and I wanted to bring it to all of you. So thanks very much for subscribing and listening to Beyond Politics. And with that, here's Howard. A couple of days ago, Matt Robeson and I talked about the Trump indictments. And I want to talk to Matt about that briefly again, because there was a little bit of movement yesterday. But I invited Matt on last week to, to talk about how the systems are failing. Just like we talked about with Governor Strickland in Ohio, where the legislature just thumbed their nose at the Supreme Court who said your, your redistricting boundaries are unconstitutional, you got to redraw them. And the legislature said, eh, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. And that's only one example. Matt Robeson is with us. That is, as you well know, we've talked about it, talked with him frequently. He is a former congressional staffer, campaign consultant, a popular broadcaster, a writer, one of our political analysts here on the show. And it's always good to talk to him. Matt, good morning. Welcome to the show again. Howard, it's great to be back. And for your listener who complained or maybe celebrated the fact that he was able to take a nap during your previous hour, I will do my best to make this as lively and exciting and not depressing as possible. I'm not sure I can guarantee that last part, though, because this topic is a stone-cold bummer, man. Yeah, we're going to get to a topic that I've been wanting to talk about for a while, and Matt was going to talk about it with me last week, and we got off on the Trump thing for the entire segment. I want to revisit this issue of things are failing in this country. But let me just talk Trump for one quick second. I I thought it was interesting yesterday, Matt, that the attorneys for Trump did not like the protective order that the judge had proposed in the uh, the D.C. case, suggesting that the way I read it, tell me if you read it this way, they felt that it was too broad that the judge said Trump shouldn't be allowed to talk about any of the evidence and talk about any of the witnesses and so on. The attorney said, no, maybe some things, but not everything should be banned. I read that as Trump is preparing to try to taint the jury pool by releasing evidence selectively, and he wants to be able to do that. That's the way I read it. I, that could be right. What you've seen over and over in Trump legal cases is a disagreement between the Trump political team and the Trump legal team. Sometimes the optimal legal strategy doesn't match the optimal political strategy. As a congressional staffer and a campaign manager, I actually found myself in this position a lot of the time. And of course, we saw this on full display in the Clinton White House, where the lawyers were frequently in charge of the strategy, right? And the communications folks, and this a lot of this came out later, we're like pulling their hair out because the things that you want to say for politics purposes and the things you want to do for legal purposes just don't always – I suspect that there may be – when the legal team is filing here, 
to try to keep things broad. My suspicion is they're trying to avoid getting themselves in trouble with the judge because they know they have a client who's a deranged maniac and is probably going to break whatever protective order ends up getting passed here, if any applies. And so they're just trying to protect themselves legally. I think what Trump has in mind is he wants to continue BSing. He loves BSing. That's his entire reason for existing. So you might be right that there is a clever alignment here between, like, inside the room, Trump and his lawyer are like, oh, what we want to do is to try to work the potential pool of jurors. That's possible. I'm just not sure that Trump is capable of that much strategic forethought. And this may be the lawyer saying, if, if we are under some kind of an injunction here, there is a 100% chance that Trump is going to break that. We're going to get in even more legal trouble. And we just want to avoid that. What does the judge do if, if Donald Trump, former president of the United States, just out and out refuses to follow an order from the court. She had already warned about not threatening witnesses or intimidating witnesses and so on, and yet he came out with a darn close to that with his comment, you come after me, I'll come after you. He actually said some nasty things about the judge. How does the judge handle a former president who violates court orders like that? This is an unbelievably difficult question. This is actually the larger meta question that I think you're asking this morning that's plaguing us across the country, which is we have a political party in this country where it has become a central tenet, part of their strategy, part of their entire worldview, that they will not abide by laws or judges or the legal system, and they are maybe not literally thumbing their nose, but they're certainly figuratively and very actively thumbing their nose at the legal system. And to connect to your first point, Trump thinks, whether or not this is true, Trump thinks that he is deriving a political benefit the more he tries to poke his thumb in the eye of judges and the Biden administration and the powers that be. And so he has every incentive in the world to do this. And it is incredibly fraught for the judge. What is the judge going to hold him in contempt, fine him? Trump has abided by legal sanctions in the past, but we're in uncharted territory here. I don't know that I have, this is the hardest answer for any like political analyst or staffer to give. I'm not sure I know the answer to your question. I do not know what this judge does. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. We are in uncharted territory, and that's why so many of the questions I've been asking the last few weeks are almost rhetorical questions, because I have no sense of it. It seems to me that Trump has already shown his willingness to push against the order to not intimidate witnesses. It's been arguable at the moment, but I can easily picture Trump going over the line and just basically saying, so-and-so, I'm coming to get you. And then, But what do you do? If it's a normal defendant, you find them, you hold them in contempt, you may even put them in jail for a day or two. You probably don't do that with the former president of the United States. So what do you do? How do you try to make him accountable when he is not accountable? And you're right, that's the heart of the conversation I want to have right now. How do we hold people accountable who simply choose not to be held accountable to the rule of law? We just talked last hour with the former governor of Ohio, Ted Strickland, about the Ohio legislature last year had Supreme Court orders to redraw the the redistricting boundaries, and they basically said, no, we just won't. And indeed, 
Ohio went to the polls with what were essentially ruled illegal boundaries, redistricting boundaries. Down in Alabama, I think it was Alabama, Alabama, where the Supreme Court, the U.S. Supreme Court had said, you have to create a second district, a more black district. And the Alabama GOP-led legislature said, yeah, no, we're not going to do that. The world's falling apart, Matt. Let's go to the Ohio example, although all of those, I agree with your last statement, I agree with all of them, because the Ohio example is the exact same situation that you just laid out hypothetically with Donald Trump. So the Ohio Supreme Court ruled that what the Ohio Republican-led legislature had done was unconstitutional, it was illegal. And bear in mind, anyway, I'll This continues to spool out because the illegalities keep stacking one on top of the other. And so the chief justice of the Ohio Supreme Court had a decision to make when the legislature basically just said, hey, go go pound sand. She decided not to hold them in contempt. And she said on the record that she was doing that because she thought that the political consequences would be too great. This is the exact situation. You just laid out with Donald Trump. What do you do? What parents go through this all the time. What do you do with a willful child who simply will not do what you tell them to do? And now we have a willful toddler who is also the former president of the United States and who is also, according to his own attorneys, delusional. Let's not forget. We could go off on that tangent if we want. Let's not forget that essentially what his attorneys argued all weekend is that Donald Trump was so delusional that only he believed his big lie and that this man who could not comprehend reality should somehow get access to the nuclear codes again. That's their argument. And so you have this delusional toddler figure who simply may not abide by the rulings of our legal system. And then what are you left with? We went through this when there, there were people who refused congressional subpoenas. And there was conversation of, do you put them in jail? Members of the Trump administration, there are, Congress does have to pay, Congress has a sergeant at arms. I got to tell you that I have, when I was a congressional staffer, like the sergeant at arms is not an intimidating figure, okay? We're not talking about Walker, Texas Ranger here. The sergeant at arms, at theory, in theory, is at arms and could take people to, they have a lockup. You could do that. Are they going to send federal marshals after Donald Trump? Again, we're in uncharted territory here, and I don't know the answer because at the end of the day, they are getting away with this. The Alabama legislature passed, they ignored the Supreme Court order to redraw their congressional maps. They passed basically the same freaking map over again with a supermajority, and Governor Kay Ivey signed it. So under the power of the governor of the sovereign state of Alabama, she literally co-signed this defiance of the U.S. Supreme Court. Now, I don't know. Donald Trump is the defining figure, and he's the one that's hard to deal with because anything under Trump's level, there are ways to deal with it, and we could talk about some of them. Even other elected officials, there are conceivable ways to deal with it. Trouble with Trump is, if you want to hold him in contempt, if you want to say that he violated the the gag order or he threatened witnesses and you want to do something about it, you could end up creating a gigantic riot. We could be back to January 6th with Trump. Lesser figures, and I'm even talking about elected officials, 
maybe there are ways to deal with it. With Trump, that's that the judge has got to keep that in mind too. Absolutely. And just to draw a line, and this is back to a point you were making a few minutes ago. One of the four charges that was included in the latest federal indictment of Donald Trump is for violating bear with me here, including your listener who might be looking for another nap. Section 241 of Title 18 of the U.S. Code. That's basically known as the Tate Law, because back during Reconstruction, after the Civil War, we fought we fought the Civil War, okay. and it was over the issue of we cannot hold slaves in this country. In the South, the states basically did what KIV is doing right now. They basically said, no, we're just going to... We're just going to find ways to disempower and disenfranchise our black citizens. We don't see them as citizens. And so the federal government passed this law to give itself the power to go after people who try to deny voting rights to citizens. And Donald Trump has now been charged under this law, which is super appropriate. And so there's a through line here back to the Civil War. And in essence, I'm not trying to sound overly dramatic, but I'm not sure that I see a big difference between the original intent of, the, of those laws from 150 years ago and what we're seeing now. The Civil, law, the Civil War was fought in part because the southern states wanted to be able to nullify federal laws. Is that not what Ohio and Texas and Alabama and all of these states are now doing, what the entire Republican Party is now doing. It feels to me like the same thing. And here we are, 150 years later, and these people are still revolting. It's not just the folks you mentioned, even members of Congress. Jim Jordan, I think, is still ignoring a congressional subpoena. 400 days later. Ordered, subpoenaed to testify, and just just ignores it. So, Donald Trump, let's talk about how we got here. I don't think there's any question Donald Trump exacerbated the lack of faith in our institutions. I don't know that any of us recognize in the beginning of his presidency how powerful his ability to destroy our faith in our institutions was. But it already was at a pretty low level. Americans had become distrustful of almost all institutions, even before Trump was president. That's absolutely true, and there is a long pattern. There's actually a fun Google, if you're looking for something to do with your hands while you listen. You can look up Gallup polling on Americans' faith in institutions. You see a pretty straight downward slide on virtually everything. The most dramatic one recently has been on the Supreme Court. Go figure. Support for or trust in the Supreme Court as an institution has gone down by about 20 points over the last 20 years. That's very substantial. And look, I think that's a good way to put it, that, that trends that we already saw. And just to draw another connection point, what we're seeing in your neighboring state, and I'm sure Governor Strickland commented on this when he was on your show. That's a great guest. He's a phenomenal political leader. I'm sure you guys talked about the referendum, issue one, happening in Ohio today. What that all boils down to is if we don't like the rules that we have set up, if Republicans are saying, if we cannot win under these rules, we will keep changing rules until we can. Issue one is just the latest attempt by Republicans to change the rules around referenda, around ballot measures. They've actually done this in at least 10 states that we can count in just the last six years. Ten states, 20% of America 
They've tried to change the rules for ballot measures. Why? Because they're losing. Because when the people get a say... Yeah, when, the, I, yeah, when democracy works, they're in trouble. When democracy works, they're in trouble. And they're changing all kinds of... They're not just changing the threshold for passing the referendum. They're changing the rules for even being able to get it on the ballot. And they're making that harder. And they're creating all kinds of... It's just like voter ID laws and hours at polling places. In fact, the exact same thing. Over and over again, what this is a culture that has gripped the Republican Party is they've decided that they cannot win when democracy prevails, so they've got to change the rules and change the rules. The end result of that is the authoritarian takeover that they attempted on January 6th. You have to, I have to chuckle in Ohio, though. The, the Republican-led legislature just last year decided that it was too easy to get measures passed on special elections in the middle of, well, let's say, August. And so they banned them. They passed a law that says you can't have these special elections because they're low turnout elections and they're easily manipulated, and so we're just not going to have them. Until they wanted one, and then they went ahead and did it anyways against the law that they themselves had passed. Exactly. And I would laugh. If I, did, I would laugh, except I think I should cry. Let's take a break. We'll be right back. And just to draw all the dots together, what was back to that decay laws? What were those about? That was about, remember, we didn't, when Carol Mosley Braun was elected U.S. Senator from Illinois in the 1990s, she wasn't the first African-American U.S. Senator. There were black senators during the Reconstruction era. Sure. What the people of the South suddenly realized after the Civil War is, whoa, if we're being governed by democracy here, we're going to lose. We're going to lose power. That's what all of these attempts to disenfranchise black people were all about, which was we have got to prevent these people from voting by any means we possibly can. We cannot allow democracy to prevail. We will lose power. Again, that is the exact same thing that you see with voter ID laws. I was just going to say, it's still going on today. And it's still going. And that's it's just another form. It's the exact same thing with all of these anti-voting measures that you see. And then it's the exact same thing, which, look, if we can't win under with voting, then what we're going to do is we're going to get rid of rules to pass ballot measures and referenda. And in that way, we're going to advance the independent state legislature theory, which is law from the Supreme Court, which says courts can't constrain us. The only sources of power that are going to be allowed are the ones that we control. And if we still lose, if we still lose after we've all the rules are advantage, then what you get is the January 16th. You get Donald Trump and the fake electors and the big lie and the plot to overthrow the federal government of the United States. Only a few more minutes with my Matt Robeson as we're talking. The lack of faith in American institutions, we see it, Matt, most clearly with Donald Trump and his attacks on the Justice Department and on the FBI and on law enforcement in general and then many of his cult and others in the GOP rally around that. But really, these, this lack of trust in institutions goes even deeper than that, doesn't it? It goes very deep, and we talked a few minutes ago about there's a substantial amount of polling on this that shows that Americans' faith in institutions has been degraded. But it's not that it fell off a cliff, it's that it was pushed. And some of it, I'm not going to blame politically on Republicans. I'm just not. In the last 
25 years, about 40 million Americans have stopped going to church, right? That's 12% of the population. And in your other line of work, I'm sure that's not a welcome, that's not a welcome thing for you. Ever. I, and so that's, I'm not going to say that that's Republican politicians' fault. As a matter of fact, they probably have a vested interest in seeing the reverse happen. So there are larger societal changes. But Republicans have leaned into trying to degrade faith in expertise. Tom Nichols wrote a whole book about this. You can read him in The Atlantic, The Death of Expertise. And you saw this most in display during the height of the pandemic and the denigration of medical expertise and running down what medical professionals, what epidemiologists, what Anthony Fauci and what the government were telling us. Now, was the leader there Donald Trump? Yes. Did the whole Republican Party buy in? Yes. Was Ron DeSantis' theory of the case for why he would be successful running for president, running on the strength of his anti-COVID protective stance? Yes. Well, like, that's, that is part and parcel. But you see it brought And if you look at the most recent set of Gallup polling, you see that faith in the military is down five points. Lo and behold, Republicans have started attacking the military in the last couple of years as, oh, it's all too weak. Faith in the police, down six points. Some of that probably accords to some of the Black Lives Matter protests. There, there, are, you know, there are certainly factors that might be coming from the left there. The medical system, we just talked about that. Faith in church and organized religion, we talked about that, down six points. Public schools, faith down four points. The point is that it's a constellation of there are trends, some of which are just things that are happening in society, things that are happening in the world around us. But the Republican Party has made it part of their mantra to adopt an anti-institution, anti-expertise, anti-science, and just generally anti-trust a stance. And that's they are degrading our ability to be coherent together as a society because there's nothing that we trust in together. But the question becomes then, if I may use an old Groucho Marx line, who do you trust? Okay, we don't trust – and by the way, it's amazing that these are once upon a time institutions the Republican Party was giantly behind. We don't trust the police. We don't trust the courts. We don't trust any politician. We don't trust the media. We don't trust religion. We don't – certainly we're seeing the, the, the trust in schools. I don't know that's a universal thing, but that's clearly a plank of what the Republicans want to have is no trust in our education system. I oftentimes ask my Republican friends who start down this road, what do you believe in? What do you believe in? It's like the Trump. philosophers in the Big Lebowski. They're nests. They believe in nothing. Like – they in their authoritarian dear leader Trump because he says so. But no, they there isn't a common cultural fabric. Now what conservatives, not Republicans, what true conservatives would say, because those things are no longer this is that the chicken that comes before the egg here is the fraying of cultural fabric. It's the statistic of twenty five million fewer Americans attending church. It's the lack of shared cultural values. It's the, it, it would be some of the loss of what for them were traditional cultural values. That is their theory of the case. What someone of a more liberal bent might say is, again, it's not that these things fell off a cliff, it's that they were pushed. I think that these things are incredibly complex, right? And trying to assign blame 
And then even harder trying to assign fixes. It's just it's incredibly complicated. Yeah, I get I get so frustrated anymore because to use your comment, use your phrase, the fraying of the of the cultural fabric. I don't know how we knit it together again. That's my problem. I don't know how that happens. Matt, I do know that I'm short on time, so I got to say thanks for joining us again. Reminder: people can check out your podcast, Beyond Politics, and others always on any of the podcast uh, platforms. They can follow you on oh no, what's this? X now. I can't call it Twitter. It's on X. Uh, follow Matt on X. Uh, are you on threads? I'm on threads, too. I'm So I, on X, I'm at Matt L. Robeson. On threads, I don't know. I think I'm also still at Matt L. Robeson. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. I'm on threads. I haven't used it much either, but uh, people can find you there. And, of course, the Blue Amp video channel, too. Matt, i got to run. Thanks for joining me today. Always a great conversation. We'll do it again sometime soon. Absolutely. Take care.